We're coming now to the section of our study in the book of Job where we get to have really some practical uh, teachings about suffering and about some things about way God runs the world. But we've needed all of this background up to this point. And I know for for us in our society, we're very much the microwave kind of culture that I just want to get to the point. I want it in 140 characters or less. I just want to know what I have to know. And that's not the way God's literature works. And Job has been very much this way in building up and building up for us. And one of the things that we have seen as we arrive now in Job 25 is that the, the three friends and Job are basically in a stalemate at this point. The three friends continue to contend that Job has sinned and that's why he's suffering. Job continues to contend that that's not the case. They've gone round and round and round for many cycles doing this back and forth and we've gotten nowhere. And the answers that we've seen these three friends provide have been insufficient. The answers that Job has provided is insufficient. And so we're kind of left now waiting in the balance of, all right, we're looking for some answers now. We're looking for some particulars about these kinds of things, about suffering and how God runs the world. And so what we're going to notice tonight now is as we go into this final set of speeches, we're going to see the way that Job speaks about his life is highly instructive for us as we approach suffering and we deal with suffering. We ought to keep in mind how the book of James reminds us in chapter 5 where James says, consider the endurance, the steadfastness of Job. That there is much to be gained by looking at how he handled all of this and how he dealt with his pain and suffering that becomes instructive for us. And that's what we're going to really get a chance to look at here in chapters 25 and 31 is we're going to get to see Job now in his longest discourse yet, his final discourse that he will offer where we'll get to see then some of the pictures of his endurance and what we need to do in regards to handling our suffering. In Job 25, it's the final word of the three friends. It's Bildad. Let's listen to what Bildad has to say in Job 25. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm? we could put on there and thus ends the saying of the three friends <laughs> that's all for them and they're done that's the, that's their finale I, I think in looking at Bildad's final attack here it is fascinating to notice that's the shortest they've ever been isn't it usually it's a pretty long blustery discourse about here's the way God runs the world and Job it always would end and Job you're a sinner I mean it's every single cycle has had that refrain what you are noticing is that the the arguments are petering out. In fact, to our surprise, you have Eliphaz who always goes first, Bildad goes second, and we should expect after Job's response here that we should have Zophar come in and say something. But you will notice, and if you will, 
There's no final statement of Zophar. It is giving us this picture with the shortened response of Bildad and the lack of response of Zophar that their answers are waning. They are petering out. They have nothing more to say. They have said all that they can think to say. They are fruitless words that they continue to offer up. And so finally we are getting down to the point where we're just saying we have nothing more to say of these things. And the final words that you get are something that we've heard these friends say before. You notice it there in verse 5 that no one can be pure before God. But then even sharper in verse 6, how much less man who is a maggot, the son of man who is a worm. And so humans can't be right before God. And especially a maggot like you, Job, you cannot be right and pure before God either. I want to put my finger on that statement there in verse 6 for a minute before we press forward. Because that's an interesting way that he words it. And, And sometimes I think there is this tension in trying to understand how we should properly perceive ourselves before God. Because I think it is interesting that he says it this way. Because I think if we were to take it from our perspective... As we look at God, we recognize we are nothing before Him. He is majestic. He is exalted. He deserves all glory. And we are certainly nothing before Him. And the Scriptures tell us we need to humble ourselves and have a proper understanding of who we are and and, and where we stand before God, that we would never elevate ourselves before Him. And so we need a humble view of ourselves before God. But what is wrong about what he says is while our perspective ought to be to God, how high and exalted and lifted up he is such that I am nothing and I am unworthy of him. How fascinating it is that God doesn't come from his vantage point and say in his holy word to you, you humans are worms and maggots. That's not God's perspective of humanity. And I think that's an interesting balance that sits there is we are supposed to have a proper understanding of God and who we are before him. But God never comes in and says, you know what, you're just a slug. You are slime. You're worse than the ooze that's climbing out of the gutter. And so, you know, that's who that's who you are. That's never what God says. God always gives us these wonderful pictures of you're my children. You're my prized possession. You're whom I love. In fact, I want you to understand how highly treasured you are to me. I will send my only son to die for you. And so you have that picture that you have to hold in that proper tension. And that's why when we've done prior lessons, and I think it's worth bringing out this this evening. That when we talk about our proper perspective before God, that we would never slide into what is pop psychology and culture today of, well, we need to have self-esteem. Because what that idea says is, I need to prop myself up. I'm wonderful. I'm glorious. I'm amazing. God is always saying, no, that's your problem. You need to be humble before God. You need to remember who you are in the sight of God. But by the same token, to turn around and recognize God has given you value. It is not about me and how wonderful I am. Look at my career. Look at all my accomplishments and all my achievements. Aren't I amazing? 
But look at what God has done for us. And that's where we derive our value. Now I know I am valuable. Now I know I am a prized possession. Not because I can, you know, jump the highest and be the greatest basketball player or be the best person at work or make a pile of money or whatever it is that we try to find our value at by some kind of achievement. But because God says, you're mine, you're my children, I love you, and you're valuable to me. And this is where Eliphaz and Bildad are wrong when they bring up these kinds of words. Going, well, God doesn't care about you, and He doesn't care if you're pure. How much You're just a maggot before God. That's not true. That's not how God perceives His people. That's not how He looks at us. And that should be an amazing thing, because if you would consider, does God not have every right to go, you're just the fleshly creation, and I am the Almighty God, and you are nothing, and look upon us as if we were looking upon ants, and go, whatever. But that's not the way God sees us. It's an amazing picture that's given to us. And then for him to say that God doesn't care if we are pure or not. I just decided to throw up there just a truckload of verses that just go, really? Of course God cares if we're pure. He recognizes our purity. In the Old Testament, the New Testament, there are many, many pastors that talk about God seeing the purity of our lives, that those things do matter to God, that those things do delight Him. Of course He desires our righteousness. Of course He desires for us to live pure lives. In fact, and in God at the very beginning when He is now speaking at Sinai and He's speaking to the people of Israel and they've done with the Ten Commandments we studied the whole book of Leviticus if you recall and the whole message of the book is be holy because I'm holy you have to be pure because I'm pure and not to say something like this that indicates well God doesn't care if you're pure or not it doesn't matter to Him it absolutely does it absolutely does So that brings in the final words of Bildad. That's his final attack. We learn nothing new in his final words. Yet again, Bildad's final words are not only a misrepresentation of Job, they are a misrepresentation of God, and more importantly, they are a misrepresentation of how God runs the world. Their points of view are incorrect. And that's why when you get out to chapter 42, you'll see God comes to them and says, These three friends of yours have not spoken to me what is right. They have not spoken of me properly in this last. Chapter 26. From chapter 26 all the way through chapter 31. Job's final words. Extremely long. I would love to be able to read every line of all of that, but... You wouldn't make it to work tomorrow if we were to go through that line by line. And so what I want to do is give you an overview of the things that are contained in the messages that you see Job say to give you that lens so that you can go back and read these in detail and have a grasp of here's the basic argument that he's presenting. And then once we've considered in all of those chapters the basic argument he presents, we're going to spend our time looking at nine ways to be able to deal with suffering that Job says he used so that he would be able to be right before God. First, in chapter 26, what does Job always do when the friends speak? Basically turn around and say, you guys are useless. And that's what he does yet again in those first four verses. How 
verse 2, how you have helped him who has no power, how you have saved the arm that has no strength, how you have counseled him, counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. You guys are so smart, so wise. You've been such a help in all of my strength. Thank you so much. And so uh, final words to these three guys. You have been no help through the whole sequence at all. And then you'll notice the rest of the chapter is Job just proclaiming the majesty of God. And he's using the universe and saying, look at the might of God. Look how amazing God is. Consider the stars. Consider all that is made. I love what we just had this last week. I was seeing on the news. We think we might have found five more planets. I mean, good for us. (laughs) It just shows how small and limited we are. Here we go. We get some technology and go, wow, we can look even further. And there's still more out there. Look how immense God is. And that's all Job is proclaiming here is do you see the immensity of God and that no one can escape from him. He rules over all these things. He sees over over all these things and essentially is trying to say you cannot begin to grasp the infinite, incomprehensible sovereignty of God. And the reason why he argues that, and I think accurately so, is that these three friends and their declarations about God is that it's as simple as this, Job. The righteous are blessed and the wicked suffer. There's your box. There's your paradigm. That's all you need to know. And Job is saying, I want you to understand that God is way more complex than that. And the way that he runs the world cannot be summarized into some little cliche line like that. That's just the way it always is. It's not the case. And so he uses the universe and the mighty works of God to express that, to say, do you understand how vast and mighty he is? Do you really suppose that in all the majesty of God that you can take a simple phrase like, well, the wicked suffer and the, and the righteous are blessed and say, well, that just sums up everything right there. And he goes, of course not. God is far too vast, far too complex and far too amazing that than those friends understand. In chapter 27, you get a picture then of perhaps arguably the worst words that Job now will say. And I just say arguably it's similar to words that he has said in the past. But this is a statement that will cause Job to get in trouble with God. Chapter 27 verse 1 And Job again took up his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. Just stop there and soak in that statement as he opens. Some of your translations may say, As God lives, who denied me justice. Same idea. You've taken away my right. This is where God's going to come in later and go, who is this that's going to say something like that before God? To say, who do you think you are to challenge the justice of God and to say of God, 
You've taken away my justice. And why does Job say that his right and his justice has been denied? Well, he tells you there in verse 2, because he's suffering. He's, God has made my soul bitter. So therefore, God has taken away my right. He's taken away my justice. He doesn't act right before me. And so verses 3 through 6, he declares his own righteousness and says, I want you to know I am right. I have done what's good. And that's what you see him describe there. My lips will not speak falsehood. My tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right till I die. I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast to my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. I am right. I am right. And I am righteous and have not done anything wrong. And God has denied me justice in this matter. God will have something to say about that. And Elihu will also have something to say about that as well. Job continues then and describes, he calls for judgment on his enemies. But I want you to consider, he isn't just doing a random, like we've seen before, the wicked need to suffer, the wicked need to be judged, the wicked need to punish, be punished. That's not exactly what he's doing. The point that he's doing by calling upon God for judgment and telling God, judge my enemies, is that he's saying, I want you to understand something. My three, these three friends of mine, they're enemies. They're my enemies. And God, you need to do something about that. You need to judge them because they have not spoken of me what is right. You see that like in verse 11 of chapter 27, I will teach you concerning the hand of the Almighty. What is what is with the Almighty? I will not conceal. Behold, all you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? You three friends have been useless to me. You've spoken false things about me. God, do something about that. Deal with these three and God will deal with those three in chapter 42 as well and so he's calling them for a justice to be brought upon them because they are his enemies because they are speaking wickedly and so therefore the rest of the section from verse 13 to the end of that chapter is a picture that the wicked are cursed by God the wicked are punished by God they will be dealt with by God and so he affirms that and believes that God will overtake the wicked and what an interesting reversal because if you remember how the friends constantly were describing the wicked and implying Job that's what's happened to you now Job now describes here's the wicked are and has just previously said you guys are the enemies and God you need to do something with them because they're the wicked and so again we're in the stalemate that Job says the three friends are wrong they are the enemies of God and the three friends are pointing at Job and saying he's wrong he's a sinner he's an enemy of God we're going to need God to weigh in later in the book to say "All right, let him sort out exactly how it all goes chapter 28 is a staggering shift in fact when you read if you read commentators and scholars they all freak out and have absolutely no idea what to do with this chapter they read this chapter and go, well, this doesn't fit. This doesn't belong. They want to rip it out, throw it somewhere else and go, it doesn't fit. It doesn't make any sense. Some will say, this can't be the words of Job. It must be the narrator who's coming in. And, but there's absolutely nothing in our text that says new person speaking or the narrator said or any of those kinds of things. This is still Job going. And what Job is saying here is, is really quite beautiful because what he describes is simply how elusive wisdom is. You, you get it. I'll, I'll read this the first verse there, but it just kind of goes on in those first 11 verses. Chapter 28, 1. 
Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. He begins this proverb by saying, okay, you can go to a mine and you can find silver and you can find gold, but where is the mine for wisdom is where he goes in the rest of those 11 verses. Where's the storehouse that you're going to go and be able to have wisdom and buy it? In fact, from verses 12 to 22, you say you can't buy it. You can't go to some source somewhere and say, I'll take wisdom for $500 and then I will have it and now it will be all good. And he makes this great point in verses 23 to 28 pointing out that wisdom only comes from the Lord. Look at verse 28 of chapter 28. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom and to turn away from evil is understanding. Now that should sound awfully familiar to the wisdom books. Because guess what? The Proverbs say that. Ecclesiastes ends his book with that. That what is it for man to do but to fear God and keep his commandments. The idea of wisdom is boiled down in Job and in Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes. Wisdom is to fear God. And wisdom is valuable. It is so valuable you can't go to the store and find it. You can't go in a mine and dig it out. And if humans only understood how valuable the wisdom of God is, they would spend more time in pursuit of it, which is what Proverbs says. And Job is also spending his time talking about as well. How we would spend more time in the word of God if we recognize the immense value of of God's wisdom and understood that this wisdom only came from him. This is where it comes from. If you want wisdom, if you want what you need for life, the fear of the Lord, the word of God, that is the place to find it. You won't find it anywhere else. You won't find it in a store. You're not going to go to the highest heights and the lowest lows. You have to go to God. And so Job... And really a beautiful chapter continues to describe the amazing imagery of wisdom and how needed it is and how it comes from God alone and cannot be found anywhere else. Chapter 29, Job does what I think everybody does when they're in the midst of trials. And that is he sits back and what he is doing is reminiscing on how life was before the trial struck. He spends his whole time just recounting. Here's what life was like before he was torn apart by this trial. The first six verses, he talks about how he had a relationship with God that at the moment he feels like he's lost. He doesn't feel like he has that relationship with God anymore because he suffers so intensely. And so he recalls to the days when he feels that he was walking with God and enjoying the light of God and the blessings of God. Verses 7 through 17, he then remembers when people respected him. They saw him as wise and they listened to his counsel. And he was considered an important person within the city. And so he remembers back when people honored him and respected him because he had helped the poor and the fatherless. Verse 12, he'd helped the dying in verses 13 and 14. He helped the handicapped in verses 15 and 16. He helped the victims of oppression in verse 17. He rounds that out in verses 18 and 20 and say, you know, back then my future was bright. You know, I was a shining star. Life was just on the right trajectory and things were looking great. And then he rounds out the the section by saying, and people came to me and respected me because I have godly wisdom that I imparted to people. And so what a thought. 
is here he is and now just to just to feel the human condition because who doesn't do that in the midst of trials going, boy I remember when life was good before this struck the way things used to be and how good those things were and and Job is expressing all of that which would lead you into chapter 30 where he just now contrasts that and just says my life is miserable now now after saying here's how good it used to be before this trial in all of chapter 30 he just says what a change has occurred first 15 verses of chapter 30 he just talks about the mockery that he has experienced you see in the very first verse of chapter 30 but now they laugh at me men who are younger than I I used to have respect and honor and imparted wisdom and did good by these people and practice righteousness and you want to know what they all laugh at me now I am disdained I am ridiculed I am mocked he describes in verses 16 to 19 how awful his body devastates him the pain that is searing within him the pain that he experiences physically he then speaks of the spiritual pain that he experiences because he feels like that God has deserted him and left him in verses 20 to 23 and he's rounding this all out and just simply is telling you it is hopeless what is going on in his life I would like to turn your attention just to verse 30 of chapter 30, just to get a sense of the pain that he's in. When he says in verse 30, my skin turns black and falls from me and my bones burn with heat. The intensity of this man's suffering. And he looks back and goes, I remember how good it all used to be. And now he sits here in the ashes and goes, my skin's falling off now. And I feel that God has left me and everybody walks by and laughs at me. And I have no hope and I am completely devastated. Final words of Job is chapter 31 then. He appeals again to his own righteousness one more time. His final cry to God is, I have been righteous. And he gives a very detailed list of how righteous he's been. Those first four verses, he talks about how morally pure he is. He made a covenant with his eyes. Verse one, he would not gaze at a a virgin because he would lose his portion with God. Verses five through eight, he's lived with integrity all of his life. He has not been a cheat. He has not been a scoundrel. He's not stolen from other people. Verses nine through, through 12, he has been faithful to his wife all throughout his days. He has not been any infidelity with him whatsoever. Verses 13 to 15, he's shown no partiality with another person, not with a servant, not with anybody. He has been impartial in every way. Verses 16 through 23, he speaks of how charitable he has been. He has not withheld anything that the poor has desired of him. He has helped the widow. He has helped the fatherless. He has helped everyone who has ever needed it of him, he describes. In verses 24 to 28, he says, I have been humble. I have not elevated. Myself. I have not raised myself up before God. I have remained humble before my God. Verses 29 to 34, he describes he's been hospitable. He's helped others and done good by them and, and cared for them. He just goes on and on and on and describing, I have been righteous. I have just laid out my appeal before God that I have done nothing to deserve the intensity and the pain and the suffering of this trial that he has experienced. And he just simply ends 
goes with just a begging of God to hear him and answer him. Verse 35, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. God is against me and I need an answer from God. Why am I being treated this way? What have I done wrong? And is finally just crying out to God and saying, you must answer me in my pain. And you'll notice at the end of verse 40, the words of Job are ended. Thus, the three friends and Job himself are done. Interesting, there's a whole lot more in the book, isn't there? Answers are now going to be forthcoming soon, but we needed to set the table of what Job has experienced and all of the false accusations about Job's life, false accusations about God, and false accusations about how God runs the world have now all been set on the table. And what I want to spend in our final minutes looking at with you tonight is there are nine pictures. I think there are nine. Let's see, nine. Nine, yes. Nine pictures. It's too many numbers. There's only be three in a sermon. Nine pictures of what you see in the book of Job up to this point that are really intentional teachings to us to help us when life explodes, when suffering happens, when the trial strikes What should we think about? What should we do? How do we handle these things? The book of Job has been amazing in giving us these pictures. First, let's start with what has been the whole of the book, this overriding message that we've seen again and again and again. You can be righteous and suffer immensely. We must underline that and remember it again and again and again. We so easily default into, I must have done something wrong. Not necessarily. That does not have to be the reason for suffering at all. That has been the reason these three friends have given again and again and again. Job, you must have done something wrong. You must have done something wrong. And we were given those glorious first two chapters that we spent a lot of time looking at that were told us he is blameless, he is upright, he fears God, he turns from evil. God called him my servant Job. You do not have to sin to experience suffering. The righteous can also suffer and friends, they can suffer intensely. I'm not sure why that concept is so elusive because Jesus and the apostles proved that quite handily. That you can be righteous and suffer immensely. The perfect Jesus suffered immensely. He had done absolutely nothing. And I mean in the absolute sense, nothing wrong and yet suffered immensely. It is possible to be righteous and suffer immensely. Let us always grab that concept from this book. This is an important teaching that this book gives us. Let us not presume that when people suffer, they must have done something wrong. When disaster strikes, well, they must have done something wrong. That flies in the face of the book of Job that says that's not necessarily an answer at all. And we are not right to presume that. Number two, what we learn from Job chapter 26 that we looked at tonight already and it appears many times in the book. 
in the midst of suffering, we still need to glorify God. And it is amazing that Job does that. We're reading about Job talking about his skin falling off and being black and he's in agony and his bones burn with heat. And chapter 26, he is proclaiming the majesty of God. He is still proclaiming God is immense. God is incomparable. He is amazing. Look at all that he's done. And it is amazing that you still have Job doing that very thing. His ability to praise God and glorify God in the midst of suffering. Friends, we are called to do that. We are called to glorify God in the midst of suffering. Romans chapter 5 verse 3. Not only that. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. But we begrudgingly complain through our suffering because we know that it's going to produce. You know, Paul said it and James said it as well. Rejoice in suffering. That doesn't mean you feel good. That doesn't mean you're happy about your external circumstances. But you can glorify God in your circumstances. And that's what James is saying. And that's what Peter says. And that's what Paul says here. Is that we rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering is producing in us some things that God is working in our lives. Let us approach suffering in that way that we can continue to glorify God that though we deal with intense suffering, intense trials, distress and difficulty, that God can and does use these things for our good to refine us, to produce these characteristics within us that he desires us to have, that God can use those things and we glorify God in the face of that suffering. Number three. The righteous hope in God to deal with those who wrong us and falsely malign us. That's a concept that we've seen many times in the book of Job and is particularly obvious in Job chapter 27, where here is Job saying, I'm not going to take vengeance on these three friends. God, you see them as enemies and you do something about it. They are not right. God, you take care of it. And we have seen again and again the message of the book of Job is that justice is not immediate. If we could break this idea that we often have about God, that the way God runs the world is strictly by the concept of justice, we would do well because he doesn't. He doesn't. The world does not run by God strictly on justice because we just simply look around for a minute and recognize there's all kinds of injustice, all kinds of things where the righteous do not get what they deserve and the wicked do not get what they deserve. We see injustice all over the place. That's not how God runs the world. We must break ourselves of that kind of thinking. It is one of the major tent pegs that atheism and agnosticism often use against God. Is If there's a God, then this world shouldn't be like this. But friends, that's not how God runs the world. He doesn't run the world by saying, I am going to make everything right in the mo- at the moment it goes wrong. And as we've mentioned many times... Praise God that's the case because we all would have been whacked as soon as we did something wrong before God. 
We're always about everybody else. God, be just to them right now, but me, give me some patience. (laughs) You're not so fast with me. God does not operate with immediate justice, but the righteous hope in God that He will deal with those things. Remember, friends, is that not again the picture of Jesus? 1 Peter 2, verse 19, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows for suffering unjustly. Notice Peter just admitted it. Christians suffer unjustly. He just threw it down right there and said, That happens. God does not operate in a paradigm of He will always do justice immediately. Here are Christians who are suffering unjustly. What should you do? Here's this picture. For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled. He did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We see Jesus on the cross and he doesn't barbecue every person who walks by mocking him and spitting him. What does Peter say he does? Entrust himself to the one who judges justly. That's what we do. One day, God will deal with injustice, but it's not right here and it's not right now. And so we deal with suffering with that way. We deal with our distress that way and knowing that we put our hope in God who will deal with those things, but He doesn't operate the world right now in a concept of justice. Number four, we see in Job chapter 28, If there is anything that we need to be able to handle trials and suffering, it is wisdom. How interesting that chapter 28 becomes this, what scholars seem to think is this completely out of place soliloquy of sorts about wisdom. And it's perfectly placed. Look at all that Job has endured the need that Job recognizes is we need wisdom for life and we need wisdom for suffering. We need that at this time. So often we read James line by line and miss the whole of putting all that together. But please hear that whole paragraph without stopping. and You will see that interconnection of this point and the last point. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now keep going, don't stop. We stop there, and there's your sermon. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Very next breath, after... Count it all joy when you're suffering through trials. Know that God is accomplishing things. But the very next line is, ask God for wisdom. That's what you need. We need wisdom in trials. Job is expressing that in Job 28. In suffering, in life, we need the wisdom of God. Pray for it and seek it from the Word of God. Number five. 
In chapter 29 of Job, and Job has said it many, many times, but in chapter 29, it's the most most poignant the way he says it. It's the most gut-wrenching the way he says it. You hear Job saying, I've lost my relationship with God. God has left me. And suffering is not a loss of relationship with God. We've talked in the Wednesday night class, Psalm 22 is an amazing psalm. It is an amazing psalm. Words that you know quite well opens with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then halfway through the psalm, the psalmist turns on it and says, You haven't left me. You've been here all along. We stopped too early in that psalm. The feeling of God has left me and later the psalmist realizes, No, he hasn't. He hasn't done so in the slightest. Suffering does not mean you've lost your relationship with God. Oh, how Job felt that way and how he could just know that no, God had not left him. We've read the book. We were privy to the first two chapters. God's been with him. God is completely with him. He has not left him in the slightest. Friends, we have that promise to us. We have that glorious promise to us. I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. We have the same promise. We can go through suffering. We can go through trial. We can go through loss. The writer of Hebrews is encouraging them. You haven't suffered like the people in Hebrews chapter 11. You haven't come to the point of shedding blood, he tells them. And guess what? Whatever you are experiencing, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you so that you can say, I will not fear. What are you going to do to me? Because God's with you. Bring it on. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. For us to always remember suffering is not a loss of relationship with God. Suffering is not a loss of relationship with God. You can suffer and be in perfect harmony with God. And proof again is Jesus, who in all of his suffering is with God all the way. He does exactly the Father's will, as he said, and Jesus himself said, my Father will never leave me. Number six. Job 30, Job is spending all of his time talking about the way it used to be, the former life. I believe Job would most certainly echo the words of the writer of Ecclesiastes. Enjoy what you have now, because it could be gone tomorrow. Job did not know he would wake up to the next day and lose everything. He was the richest man in all the East. He was blessed immensely. He was enjoying life to his own words. His his, uh, trajectory of life was bright. And he lost it all. The book of Ecclesiastes warns us of the very same thing. Appreciate what you have enjoyed today because what you have enjoyed today is a vapor. That you do not know what your life will be tomorrow. You do know not know what is coming tomorrow. You do not know if everything that you have enjoyed is going to be completely ripped away from you tomorrow. To be always prepared to enjoy the blessings of the day, recognizing they may not be there tomorrow. Job lost it all. And for us to have that same mentality about life as he did. Hey, naked I came into this world and naked I go out. He recognized I can lose my blessings tomorrow, and he did. 
and yet still worship God and praise God because we're not guaranteed that tomorrow will be as good as it was today. Enjoy the blessings that you have today. Enjoy what you've enjoyed today because it may be gone tomorrow. Number seven, chapter 31 of Job and throughout the book of Job, how Job has proven that you need to remain holy and pure and suffering. There could not have been a greater problem in the book of Job, and nothing would have proven Satan's assessment more if Job, after he suffered all of this devastation, then turned away from God. Remember, that's what Satan said would happen. The only reason people serve you is because you make life good for them. Take it all away and he won't serve you anymore. Can you imagine if Job chapter 31 was and God now and and Job now renounced God and said, I'm done. I've had it. How many people do that, though? How many people are with God through the good times and walk away in the bad? The time when you need God the most, when life crashes down around you, is often the very time when people quit on God and walk away. And all that you've proven is that Satan is right. You served God for selfish reasons. You only served him for what you got out of it. And when that was taken away from you, you no longer served. We have to be ready like Job that we will remain pure and we will remain holy if we lose all of our wealth, if we lose our parents, if we lose our children, if we lose our spouse, if we lose everything that has any remote meaning to us whatsoever, we will still serve God because we do serve him for nothing. We serve him because he is a glorious God and that's the reason we serve him to use this morning because we see the light of the glory of the goodness of God and we will rest in that. That's what Job is proving to us. Don't serve him just because of what you get out of it. Remain pure, remain holy, remain steadfast. Number eight, message of the whole book again. You're not going to have the answers for why you're suffering. Oh, how we want those. Oh, and and to tack that onto that. And everybody's probably going to tell you why you're suffering. (laughs) That's what the whole book has been about too. Well, I'll tell you why you're suffering. They don't know the answers either. Somebody tells you, here's why you're suffering. You can go, you don't know. (laughs) I, I put on there John 9. Favorite classic example. The disciples thought they knew why the man born blind was born blind. They go and say, Lord, is it because he sinned or his parents sinned? God goes, No, (laughs) wrong, strike out. So the glory of God can be put on display. That's why for this one. You're not going to know the reason why. So it is not up for us to try to spend all of our time trying to understand why. And for us to say that we know why is to presume the mind and the knowledge of God. We don't know in our particular circumstance why. Job will teach us some big concepts of what God is doing. But to your life specifically, you do not have an answer as to why this is going the way it is. Which, by the way, I'm going to talk about this later about in Job. That's the blessing of God not telling Job that either is because we connect with Job. He didn't know why he was suffering and neither do we. And the book of Job is amazing because it's not like God comes to Job and goes, well, let me tell you all this. Hey, guess what? He didn't know either. (laughs) We're just like him. No idea. Finally. One of the things that you've seen, I think that's amazing in the book of Job, is that faith can grow through the trial. 
faith can grow through the trial. We have seen Job's faith increase from his early cries back in Job 3. Back in Job 3, you have very much a, Lord, just kill me and just just put an end to this. And you've seen quite a bit of expressions of faith that, that Job has made. We've seen him accurately defend God on many occasions. We've seen Job change his theology as we've moved throughout this book. And friends, trials will do that. Trials will change you. I've told all of you that in person and from up here for the things that I've experienced in my life in regards to my family background as well as grace. Everything about my life has changed. Everything about the way I think has changed. It's changed me from top to bottom spiritually, emotionally. It has changed me politically. It has changed everything about how I look at life. Complete overhaul inside out. That's what trials do is they change you. But final caveat, sometimes going through the trial means you say things you ought not say. And Job does that here. Be warned about what you say when you're in a trial. You may be speaking inaccurately about another person, about your own situation, and about God. Job will have gone too far by the end of this discourse. And Lord willing, we're going to see next week, Elihu's going to step in and go, Job, you are in the wrong, and we need to fix that. I hope that helps you for trials. Nine pictures of what the book of Job gives us to handle suffering, how to go forward, how to live life, and the perspective we need to be able to deal with the difficulties of life. I thank your attention for that. We're going to sing a song, and we invite you to come to Jesus and see the glory of God, to see how amazing he is, that he will never leave us, he will never forsake us. He is with us through our trials and through our difficulties. Are you ready to come to Jesus, and are you ready to turn away from your sins and enjoy a relationship with him? We beg you to come to him tonight before it's too late. Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?